0: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Exploding Birkin's Edition. It's Wednesday, June 26, 2019. On today's show, The Good Fight is the sequel to CBS's much-beloved and sorely-missed The Good Wife, and we discuss it with the uh, wonderful Mark Harris of Vulture, and then we're joined by extreme friend of the program, EFOP, uh, Jody Rosen, to discuss his really epic exposé. It really is an extraordinary piece of writing in the New York Times magazine called The Day the Music Burned. And finally, Sally Rooney is a very young, impudently young Irish writer whose novels have lit readers' minds on fire. We discuss her latest and it appears to be the big summer read this year, uh, the novel Normal People. Joining me today is uh, Julia Turner, who is, of course, Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia.
1: Hello. I'm so happy to be back.
0: It is so incredibly good to have you back. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. I missed you guys. I can walk again. I'm not dead. I just sprained my ankle grievously. Uh, and I'm excited to chat with you guys this week about this exciting bevy of topics, and next week, when we strut.
2: We're already strutting. We just haven't started talking about it yet, right? Yeah. Haven't you guys done some serious strutting already with the playlist? I've oh, yeah. been
1: strut driving entirely through Massachusetts. There are some good songs this year, so uh, we, are, we are processing your suggestions, and we look forward to revealing our selections next week.
0: Yeah, and it's not too late to send in more suggestions. I should say,
1: Summerstret
2: at slate dot com.
0: Yeah, uh, and of course we're joined by Dana Stevens, who is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. Jody Rosen is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. He's been a personal friend of all of ours and of the program forever. He's also a Steve Metcalf public frenemy number one. He has written one of the finer works of uh, journalism in memory. I, I really, really mean that. This is an astonishing and really kind of epic act of both love and investigative zeal. Uh, The Day the Music Burn tells the story of an incalculable loss uh, of America's cultural heritage. There was a backlit fire at the Universal Studios out in California in June of 2008. This was widely reported, but what went mostly unnoticed at the time was that the fire included in its path of destruction an archive in Building 6197. It turns out this is the Universal Music Group's main West Coast storehouse of master recordings. We're going to get into exactly what a master recording is and why that's significant, but uh, just very quickly, I mean... We're talking now about original recordings of uh, Louis Armstrong, Al Jolson, Bing Crosby, Ella Fitzgerald, Judy Garland. I, I mean, the list goes, Jody, on and on and on and on. Begin by just telling us what burned and uh, and let's get deeper into it and figure out what this means.
3: Right. So, um, what burned? Well, this this uh, facility was the West Coast storehouse of master recordings of various types and vintages for a number of historically significant record labels um, the kind of top line news is that this was the place where they kept the tape masters of Decca records um, that would be Decca records recordings from the late 1940s going forward um, stuff that was on analog tape as opposed to the earlier stuff which were metal parts masters so there were the Deco Decca is a label with a long long history um, also chess records the great blues label its master recordings were housed there those were um mono masters on tape as well also uh mca records a and records um abc paramount records interscope and geffen um, were housed here and many sub labels that is smaller labels that were absorbed uh, that came under the umbrella of those other labels, and ultimately under the umbrella of Universal Music Group, which is the world's largest record company, and also the kind of world, the largest record company that has ever existed. This is really, in part, a story about um, corporate conglomerates and the um, and the fact that now, basically, all of the popular music and much of the other recordings of, that were made in the 20th and now early 21st century are owned by three mammoth record companies, which themselves are um, are subsidiaries of of larger media conglomerates. So that's the stuff that burned. Um, it in total, um, according to the the documents that I looked at and, and these and to testimony, for instance, in depositions and legal proceedings by representative of the record t- company, we know that somewhere north of a hundred thousand master tapes burned and according to the record company that was you know that comp- that comprised in total over 500,000 individual tracks or songs
0: Mm -hmm. And just to get at maybe uh, one aspect of this that might not make sense to someone who hadn't read your piece yet, and people should, they should run, not walk to their computer and read it. But there's always been a pretty vast discrepancy between the quality of recording equipment and playback equipment. And one of the reasons why you hold on to these masters forever is that as the technology to play things back uh, progresses and develops and becomes more sophisticated, you can... Go back to the masters, remaster it in order to fit that new technology, and people will hear the music as they've
3: never heard it before.
2: The example you give in the piece, which I think is useful, is that Sgt. Pepper's was remastered, right, by George Martin's son in the last decade or so. Yeah, kind and, of
3: remixed, but from yes, but but yes. But
2: revealed all kinds of sonic textures that nobody had heard in the previous forty years of its e- exactly. existence. Exactly.
3: Yeah. The reason I went to that is because that's a that's a record which is one of the most listened to recordings of all time, and yet this new version which um, uh, which George Sir George Martin's son Giles uh, produced and came out two years ago really was a revelation because all of a sudden you're you're hearing a different Sergeant Peppers a, a more muscular burly more kind of rock and roll Sergeant Peppers and and I felt like oh wow I can I really know these songs now in a more profound way than I did in listening to other versions but also in many cases these tapes contained extra material extra recordings outtakes. Demos other stuff. There were many many tapes in this vault and in all tape vaults of any size that Were had very little metadata on them So you had to like grab the tape put it up and even figure out what you was on the tape and often you know There are cases of people combing through vaults and finding lost recordings by greats or unknowns So Mm -hmm. that stuff is lost too when you lose the master Jody, let's just, I'm
0: going to hand it over to my colleagues in one second, but I'll just play a quick game. I'm going to say a genre and you give me the three most important artists whose masters have been lost. Okay? Mm-hmm. Rock and roll.
3: Uh, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, Bo Diddley, Muddy Waters, if you count Muddy Waters as a proto rock and roll. There. <laughs> a lot, there's lots. Uh, jazz. Uh, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, John Coltrane, Billie Holiday, Ella oh. Fitzgerald.
0: <laughs> I mean, incredible soul music or R&B. Which do you prefer?
3: (laughs) Well, okay, it it depends on your definition. I mean, uh, like, for instance, Louis Jordan lost a lot of Decca tapes in the fire. Louis Jordan, the great jump blues, like early R&B artists lost tapes. Um, Patti LaBelle, Chaka Khan and Rufus, uh, Barry White. Um, I mean, I honestly, I don't have the list in front of me and it's so vast and I've got yep. so many names in my head that I might not be good at this game. And
2: more names keep pouring out ever they since you published out. your story. There,
3: yeah, I, I mean, I've been working on, I'm continuing to work on this stuff a little bit and I, I think I can say by the time this airs, or maybe just after this airs, there, there will be a, a, gr- a far greater number of names out there, names that, um of artists whose recordings the record company believed were lost in the fire and were pursuing in in their efforts to kind of reconstitute um the archive albeit in sonically inferior form with subsequent generations of copies and duplicates and stuff.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the corporate and bureaucratic tragedy here? I mean one of the one of the striking things about this incredible feat of reporting and why is it that they took such bad care of their masters in general how wh- how is it that these are preserved and and how did the universal music group you know end up treating its artists
3: in this way well let me talk about why they kept this this stuff there look you know um the, the, this is this story takes place in a context and that context is a, is a more than century long history of record companies kind of treating their master recordings in bad ways record labels have been dumping these in landfills carving them up so they could sell the the metal parts of the reels to scrap metal dealers taping over master recordings chucking them out letting them sit in poor condition or you know un, un, unsuitable conditions so that they degrade for a long long time so this is this is the worst disaster of it ever in the music business, but it's not the only one. It's hardly the only one. The reason that um, Universal kept stuff there, well, there were a couple, but the the biggest reason is they wanted access to this material um, in Los Angeles in their studios out there where they could... um, use them for re-releases and reissues and stuff it was convenient and cheaper than storing them at a third-party facility such as the ones found in iron mountain which is where umg and other record companies store the vast majority of their assets now but this is a key point the reason i'm dwelling on it is umg has pushed back on this story quite a bit in ways that um I can maybe talk about why it's <laughs> problematic for them <laughs> but uh, and and in my view untrue but in any case um, one of the things they said is oh well you know these weren't all masters you're wrong about this. you're c- construing everything that law lo- that was lost as a first generation original master and it wasn't and that that is true in fact I didn't I deliberately didn't state that I knew that everything in this vault was a first-generation original master, but many things were. And one of the reasons we know that is they kept them out in Los Angeles because these were things that were frequently pulled, that is, taken out of the vault and brought to studios for reissue projects. So I talked to a guy just the other day who worked for Universal Music Group's um, catalog arm, Universal Music Enterprises, who talked about... All the work he did with, for instance, Neil Diamond tapes and, and Joni Mitchell tapes, the original masters, which came into that vault, were pulled out so they could work on box sets, and were sent back to the vault after that project was over. So that's reason. That's the reason why they were kept there. I, one one person I spoke to said to me, "You wouldn't keep lots of copies in a in a theme park vault. That doesn't make sense. They kept them there because they wanted access to these originals." As it turns out, that was a poor decision because the, it was it was quite unsafe there. There was lots of <laughs> crazy stuff going on, in, on on the Universal Studios' backlot. Not just were movies filmed there, but it was a theme park. There were tourists whizzing by. There were camels walking by and elephants walking by on their way to movie shoots. And there were pyrotechnics uh, used in, for instance, a King Kong attraction, like a, a, a ride for tourists that sat 15 yards from this vault. So that was a bad decision a fire broke out, it was a bummer, they wound up losing the stuff. But as you say, they were not candid with the press who came asking about this, or with their artists, crucially, in the aftermath. And that kind of lack of candor has continued. You know, UMG has said in response to this article, This was kind of, what they're suggesting is this was an earlier regime. The current CEO, Lucian Grange, has made UMG a real blockbuster. He's kind of a revered figure in the industry, and he's a guy who is known to have good relationships with artists, so this is something he's not pleased about. But the fact is, the lack of candor, they're not revealing to their artists what happened to their tapes has continued well into his tenure. So, one of the things that they did was to press people who came asking about this fire in the immediate aftermath, they said, oh, they had kind of of a shifting narrative, but essentially they said we didn't lose anything of value. We had no loss. We lost a little bit, but it was only obscure artists from the 1940s and 50s and nothing to worry about. To their artists who subsequently came saying, hey, can I get a hold of this tape because I want to do a reissue or where's my master? They would say things like, can't be located. Don't know where it is. That is actually not totally atypical because of the history of really shitty archival practices in the music industry. Like, lots of the time, these these things are owned outright by mu- by record labels, and artists get become used to hearing from record companies, ah, sorry, we can't find your masters, dude. But the issue was they never revealed to them, or they did in very few cases and only under pressure, um, that the masters were lost in a fire and all this shit burnt up. So that's... That's bad news for them.
2: Jody, it's almost impressive how long this cover up lasted and how well they were able to keep up the front that the fire had not been a serious loss to UMG over the course of, you know, the digital era beginning and, you know, um, being able to people being able to research this stuff. I mean, the fire had been reported at the time in 2008 when it happened. But here it is, 2019, and only now is the true scope of it starting to really unfold with your piece. So I guess one of my questions is, what was the germ of this story? How did you know there was something there to report?
3: Uh, well, as it turns out, this was like kind of an open secret in the music business, especially in circles like of recording engineers, people who work a lot on reissues and deal with old tapes, people knew. Um, artists didn't really know. Um, the press didn't know, but people in the industry knew. And in fact, it was like, it was sitting out there in plain sight on the internet. T- like the, up until the moment my piece published on the Wikipedia page, there was, it was sitting right there. Decca and Chess Masters were destroyed in a fire. So it was an open secret. The way I caught wind of it, though was um i got hold of some documents and it was i got hold of a lot of documents and at first i didn't really know what the documents were or what the what story they were telling so i had to kind of kind of comb through them and orient myself and gradually like the mists parted and a a narrative emerged and I said aha I get what I'm looking at here and then there were you know names in those documents of people who would who knew more about this and I began to pursue leads and call people and have people tell me they couldn't talk some people told me oh yeah I'll I'll talk to you about that and that's how I did the reporting on the story
0: Jody I think um uh I mean there's so many fascinating details in this piece but pulling out a little bit um i mean we're talking about a kind of institutional inability to understand that these are lasting works of art produced by geniuses right like like millennial geniuses in a way i mean you're and you're also talking about an art form that's in its first 100 years that it's developing as it goes and no one understands what they're doing i mean recording technology you know, emerges. And all of a sudden, you're capable of taking a performance and making it you know, specific performance at a time and place and making it a permanent object. And along the way, people were making a lot of money. And about the last thing on their minds was posterity. I mean, in many instances, people had no idea what was even going to chart, much less be something someone wanted to listen to in 300 years. Um, is that a kind of discrepancy that occurred to you while you were looking at this, that, that now we can finally, or not now, but I mean over, it took time to understand that you know, in a thousand years, people would and should be interested in Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington. But at that moment, there's a kind of excitement, uh, 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 the, the excitement is so powerfully evanescent that no one could think in those terms.
3: Yeah, I think that's totally right. And in fact, like, there's lots of stuff because this that <laughs> wound up on the cutting room floor in this piece. I I wrote it even longer <laughs> than it turned out, than it was published at. But um, but one of one of the things that's like definitely crucial to understand about this history is the fact that it was only relatively recently that popular music had had any kind of um cultural capital. You know, it produced other kinds of capital and it was a business of hits. So they would, someone would make a record, they'd try and exploit that record, make some money, that was it. But even the people who were in the business, even the recording artists themselves, didn't conceive of what they were doing as art for many decades. It wasn't really until um, the rock era that, that, you know, the kind of late 1960s and early 70s maybe mid 60s that there was there this consciousness about the idea that popular music was an art form of which which had some cultural value um, was out there and and let's not forget that so much of this music was made by African Americans so that's there's another reason there for its broad cultural devaluation I would argue but people thought of this stuff as dross so the idea that this would be stuff that you'd want to preserve these artifacts in the way that you would want to preserve a painting or you know a book in a library or something that simply wasn't there so it was only only in over the last few decades that people in the record business kind of developed that consciousness oh this you know these these are great works of art this is an american cultural patrimony and moreover it was only oh, really in the early mid 1980s with the advent of CDs that the catalog business Um, became a big deal and record companies realized, hey, shit, we can make money off these old records. We can repackage them into box sets and, and all these, you know, now yuppies who were hippies will want to buy, you know, whatever. Chuck Berry's, complete chess box set or you know, Eric Clapton's Crossroads box or whatever and and uh, and so it's you know as ever it's like follow the money like whatever the consciousness that was developed around these things as works of art it was the fact that people could make money off old recordings that really compelled a, a, a changed attitude but unfortunately didn't compel um, a transformation of archiving and preservation practices
0: well, Jody, this is, this is an astonishing work of journalism. You should be so incredibly proud. It went viral. It got tweeted to high heaven. It is just a chef div. uh Congratulations, and thank you uh, for coming back on the show. Let's do it again soon. Thanks, guys. All right, well, before we go any further, now is the moment in our program where we talk about business. Dana, what do you have?
2: Stephen, our only business today is to tell you that in Slate Plus, we will be talking about the same novel that we're talking about in our third segment today, Sally Rooney's Normal People. Uh, Because it's hard to talk about a novel in just 10 minutes, and especially because we didn't want to spoil in our segment, we saved some of the interesting bits, including an argument that Steve and I got into about whether the first half or the second half of the book is the superior half for our Plus segment. So to hear that segment and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, for just $35 for your first year. You can help cover the cost of producing this show and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of those shows and lots of other wonderful benefits. So please go to slate.com slash culture plus if you want to join Slate Plus today. All right, back to the show.
0: The Good Wife uh, was in one sense a fairly standard law firm dramedy. It was networked, but it was also somehow more daring, more profane, more socially relevant. It has been succeeded by the good fight. After Diane Lockhart and her goddaughter get laid low by a huge financial scandal, they join a historically African American firm. That's the setup. Lockhart artist played by uh, Christine Baranski, of course, and her niece is Rose Leslie. Uh, it's In a broader sense, it's been said that the Trump era is being taken head on in the show the way its prede- predecessor took on the Obama era. Let's listen to a clip.
4: This is deranged. This is the Trump derangement syndrome. You're just as bad as you're accusing him of being. No, I'm just done with being the adult in the room. I am done with being the compliant and the sensible one
1: standing stoically by while the other side picks my pockets, while the other side gerrymanders Democrats out of existence, a three million person majority, and we lost the presidency. A Congress that keeps the Supreme Court justice from being seated
4: because he was chosen by a Democratic president. That's not what happened. That is exactly what happened, Julius. OK, then. Take to the streets. Man the barricades. Because if that's what you really think, You've given up on the law. You, you've you gone well beyond any.
1: Actually, you don't know. I have a Smith & Wesson 64 in my desk, and I'm this close to taking to the streets.
0: We're joined by Mark Harris, a contributor, at uh, writer, at Vulture, and author of the really great book Pictures at Revolution, The Also Great Five, came back. And Mark, am I right you're writing a biography of Mike Nichols right now?
4: Yes, I am. Thank you uh, for mentioning that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's exciting. Uh, I cannot wait to read it. Um, I'll admit that this TV show is uh, nor its predecessor have been central to my cultural diet, but I believe the smart people in my life who say that both are great. I understand you're something of a completist uh, when it comes to both. Is that right?
4: I, I am. I think I've seen uh, every episode of of both shows, and and uh, yeah, I join the people who are telling you that um, that this definitely belongs in in your life, even if it seems like an unlikely fit.
0: I think of you as one of the smart people in my life, Mark, even though it's only through Twitter. <laughs> but I, so when I when some when a when a hopeless snob like me encounters this on contact, I think, oh my god, it's uh, yes, they say fuck, but jesus it's really network compared to a lot of what i watch so make make a case for it as a great tv show
4: i i think there there are so many ways in which it's it's not network and and two of them are one that that at its best this is a show about a really smart woman over 60 uh as a a minority member of a majority black law firm which is uh, something that you will never see anywhere on network TV, and that, frankly, in the era of the sort of uh, asshole protagonist and and angry antihero, you rarely see on cable TV. Um, but also, it, the show is doing something um, on the fly that is incredibly hard to do, which is, for three seasons now, it's trying to capture... A particular aspect of um, life under Trump, uh, which is the kind of uh, various ways in which it makes us all crazy, Uh, the ways in which it makes us despair, the ways in which it makes us lunge uh, irrationally toward uh, solutions that aren't really solutions, uh, the ways in which uh, it, it makes us constantly angry uh the ways in which we're hyper attuned to um conspiracy now it's really hard for uh, a show that's planned in advance to try to ride that vibe and and the the good fight particularly since its first season has has leaned into that very very hard
2: Well, the very first image you see of the good fight, right, the first image of the first episode is Christine Baranski's character, Diane Lockhart, watching Trump's inaugural speech, which she's just staring at in kind of frozen despair. And then she turns off the TV midway through. And so, you know, from the moment it kicks off, that that's going to be the structuring guiding principle of this show is how everyone reacts to this moment in history that we've found ourselves in.
4: Right, and and the great thing is, I think for newcomers, that if you watched all seven seasons of The Good Wife, you know what a uh, huge break this is for Christine Baranski's character, Diane Lockhart, who who was always the sort of level-headed, calm, incrementalist, uh, you know, pragmatist. She she was not. She didn't see herself, and we didn't see her, as the kind of person who would have a a, a sort of extended nervous breakdown over this election, and yet that is exactly where she finds herself. But if you didn't watch the entire run of The Good Wife... It doesn't matter because you're still being introduced to this completely fascinating character, who uh, again you don't see elsewhere on television. You certainly don't see her on uh, network TV, but you don't find her anywhere on cable TV either.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, what is most electric and fascinating about this show? Well, I guess there's 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 two qualities, and then many other interesting grace notes that I, that I agree make it a must watch and a reason to subscribe to CBS All Access, which somehow I had already subscribed to for God knows what reason. <laughs> <But> anyway, <laughs> I've been paying for it for like a year. So I finally used it and watched all three seasons in full uh, in the last couple weeks as we were preparing for this episode. Um, reason number one is Christine Baranski. Like, has anyone ever gotten enough of Christine Baranski doing anything? <laughs> like, she is just charismatic, beautiful, electric, People on the show constantly refer to how her laugh is like a gift because of its um, sonorous, beautiful, mischievous cackle. And like, yes, absolutely to that. Um, she is a kind of g- glamorous and elegant, but pragmatic and practical figure. Anyway, she just like I, I, I'll i watch any show that people make with Christine Baranski forever and ever, I think. But. You know, Michelle Goldberg had a piece about this in the New York Times. It's also really interesting that there have not been very many works of culture in the last three years that feel radically about what it feels like to be a sentient human in the Trump era. And this show is really about those things. I mean, it, it, it takes an interesting spin on what we're familiar with from Law and Order of sort of the case of the week. Um, and instead of positing that it exists in an alternate world with cases like the cases that we read about, you know, the fictional Italian version of Dominique Strauss-Kahn and the the this and that, it, you know, when they have a country star who they're hoping will engage her fan base in an anti-Trump fashion, the person they're trying to mobilize her against is really actually Trump. And they refer to Taylor Swift. They're not like pretending this person is Taylor Swift. They're you know, suggesting that they live in a world where there's already been a debate about how politically conscious Taylor Swift is. And then here's another example of something and let's explore these similar themes. It's just amazingly current. It's incredible. And they, you know, it's not on network television, but they are actually going to air season one on CBS proper over the summer. And I'm fascinated to see how that goes because season one is relatively tame with its Trump themes compared to seasons two and three. And if it develops a fan base, it feels like CBS is going to do a pl- get to a place where it's being, you know, it, it has to make a decision about whether to air seasons where the plot is really uh, gets close to like, should someone assassinate Trump? Should someone like inflict violence upon people who work for him, which is an amazing thing for a stodgy network like CBS to be doing? I mean, it's it's ama- like the, the the fundamental assumption underlying the show that nobody's watching CBS all access seems to be a key uh, precursor for exactly what the show is doing in a way that's totally fascinating.
2: Yeah, it is hard to imagine it making that jump to network TV when you think about where it's gone in the third season. I was just also going to remark that just there's a formal equivalent to that, to what you're talking about, the kind of political radicalness of the, of the third season. And it's one of the things that most fascinates me about how this show has changed. It seems like, and I haven't watched all of every season, but I have dabbled in all three of the seasons and want to go back and watch it all. And I definitely got a sense that the show transforms over the course of those 3 seasons from a fairly, you know, a current but fairly traditional legal soap in some ways or a, you know, as you say case of the week type legal show uh to something that's not only politically radical but just formally strange so there are these moments where these kind of schoolhouse rock style animated videos explaining various aspects of, you know, the legal or governmental questions in focus in that, in that episode just pop up on the screen. We don't know who's seeing them, whose imagination they're in, or why they're there, but they're hilarious and well-written and hilariously animated. That's happened a couple times that I've seen. Maybe there are more of those than I know about. There's also this this great subplot that the Gary Cole character, who's Christine Bransky's ex, who she's sort of in and out of bed with and getting back together with over the three seasons is in, in the employ of Eric and Donald Jr. Trump and that he's going to go on a hunting trip with them. And it just gets so hallucinatory and crazy. And I'm just thinking of this wonderful scene where she's lying in bed with Gary Cole. He's asleep. And she's looking at the back of his head as he sleeps and hearing the voices, the imagined voices of Eric and Donald Jr. sort of talking back at her from uh, from her, her husband's body. It's just, There's just crazy stuff like that all over the place. And I love that the show is going there.
4: Yeah, and it goes there in a really earnest way which is one thing I love I mean this is a show about um, privileged people absolutely they're high you know uh, it's it's high-end Chicago lawyers um, who are really uh, for the most part very financially comfortable um, and it captures a kind of luxurious sub strain of Trump rage which is you know the 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 extremely online, we must do something about this feeling, uh, that people who uh, just cannot believe that um, people have this feeling when they can't believe that every avenue of um, power and recourse is closed to them. Uh, It's like, these are people, Christine Baransky and also the members of her firm, who are used to being able to work the system and, and uh, one thing that comes up in uh, the second season a little bit, and particularly the third, is um, when they go to court for various cases, several times they... Um, Run up against judges who absolutely do not know how to do the job. They're just befuddled. Like they look at the gavel and say, I'm not sure what to do with this. They don't understand uh, objections. And of course, all the judges are Trump appointees. So it's not the anti Trump case of his policies are terrible. It's the anti Trump case of I can't believe this is happening to me um i i can't believe that the the world i thought i knew is is being upended this way um which is a really interesting strange upsetting thing for uh, a a tv show to play with and and I, I mean i i love the show i loved the good wife too i think that there were times in the last season the most current season of the good fight where it for me went almost risked going too far. You know, I, I think I, I think you can lean into so far, so far into Trump rage that you risk violating the integrity of the characters you've created. But, um, but it's very interesting to see a show even take that risk. Uh,
1: most of my response to the show was just marveling that it existed at all. I mean, it's a legal show that feels incredibly current with its debates. Debates about race, debates about, you know, technology, debates about the rule of law. I mean, it's a it's a legal show that instead of taking the rule of law for granted and preventing presenting you with a version of, you know, how justice works in our country that feels, you know, either consistent and sometimes corrupt, but basically reasonable like law and order or, you know, a bleak bureaucratic rigged game like The Wire, you uh, it's it's a show, a legal show that at first glance looks like a glossy network procedural, but is actually about the fundamental question of like, does the rule of law still exist in this country? Can it survive? And what do you do if you're a lawyer and uh, an affluent and powerful person who's made your whole life in that framework, which is a really precise question for a network TV show to be asking about America right now and is amazing. But after you get through marveling that it exists, I do think there's a there is a way in which particularly in the third season the show feels like it is using the those that sophisticated framework as a stage for soapy drama once again like it it does not necessarily actually feel like it has incredibly prescient or exciting or fascinating things to say about where we are right now it feels more cathartic than uh Persuasive, if that makes sense. Like it's, it just feels interesting to be in a cultural product that is in that headspace, and then within that headspace, it's still fundamentally a, a grown-up soap opera set at a law firm.
4: I, I mean, I actually like the show a lot when it welds its kind of uh, broad political concerns to the rigor and tradition of. Law cases and, 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 uh, a fairly traditionally structured format. I think, I think the, the constraints of those formats can do incredibly interesting things, uh, when they're welded to uh, writers who are as good as the writers of, uh, this show. Um, I think I, I, for me, when it flies off the rails is when it gets so invested in being about a, a feeling that it, you know, forgets to to give that feeling form. Um, and I will say that in the third season, without offering spoilers, it makes what to me feels like a, a, a mistake that's rooted oddly in more traditional network thinking, which is it allows um, a new character, a, a noisy, quote-unquote, outrageous male white protagonist, which is really the last thing the show needs to Dominate the screen for an enormous amount of time and and it this season frustrated me a little because it, you know the show is best when uh, it centers Christine Baransky and that firm the, Those are the really special things about the way this show has been put together, and it it does not need someone to come in and shake that up because the entire show is already about these people being shaken up. Um, so I struggled a little with that this season.
0: All right. Well, Mark, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I hope we do this again soon. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Normal People is the latest novel from the Irish novelist Sally Rooney. It follows two young people as they enter and exit each other's orbit, starting in what we would call high school. They don't call it that in Ireland. Um, uh, and it follows them through the beginning of their adult lives. They have a lot in common. These two, they're both very, very, very smart, exceptionally smart and academically gifted. Uh, they're from the same depressed and left-behind corner of Ireland. But importantly, they come from different classes. And quite cleverly, Rooney means... Two different things by the word class, I think. Uh, in their home lives, this means that they're from vastly different social classes. Marianne's family is rich. Connell's is poor. In fact, to make ends meet, Connell's mother cleans Marianne's family's house. At school, however, Connell is regarded as handsome, athletic, smart, and very, very popular. He's a beloved figure in the school, while Marianne is considered an antisocial freak. What follows is a quiet, steady, Precise drama of social manners in a style of understated poignancy that readers will recognize from Rooney's first and also quite remarkable and celebrated novel, Conversations with Friends. Uh, why don't we listen to a clip from the audiobook before we uh, discuss?
2: Marianne answers the door when Connell rings the bell. She's still wearing her school uniform, but she's taken off the sweater, so it's just the blouse and skirt, and she has no shoes on, only tights. Oh, hey, he says. Morning. in. She turns and walks down the hall. He follows her, closing the door behind him. Down a few steps in the kitchen, his mother Lorraine is peeling off a pair of rubber gloves. Marianne hops onto the countertop and picks up an open jar of chocolate spread in which she has left a teaspoon.
0: We don't often talk about books on the show. We almost never talk about novels. Um, Rooney, of course, is, you know, to call it a moment is to underplay it. I mean, for Several years now, she's been um, at the forefront of fiction readers' uh, minds. Dana, why don't I just start with you? Um, uh, normal people and the Rooney phenomenon. Start wherever you want. What do you make of this? Okay,
2: well, I mean, I, I have to start with this book because this is my first exposure to the Rooney phenomenon. I'm glad that you've read Conversation with Friends. So, yeah, I have I have no other context to put this in than just reading this book out of the blue. What can I say uh, that will fit into 10 minutes about about this novel? I mean... I highly recommend it. I don't think that it's going to be a novel that appeals to everyone. I was probably on page 100 before I started to realize exactly what Sally Rooney was doing. And uh, I wouldn't mind rereading those first 100 pages now with more of an eye to what I came to love about the book later. But she has, uh, as I think you said, a very spare and dry and restrained style and also an unusual use of point of view, which I'm curious to hear what you two think about. This is essentially written in a kind of limited third-person point of view where she has two different characters, but it doesn't alternate between their points of view. It's more that she sort of skates in and out of knowing what they're thinking or feeling or or being able to communicate that to us. And so even though it's a novel that's all about uh, intense emotions and about the development of this one relationship that goes from being, you know, a romantic relationship to a friendship to a sort of, you know, enemy ship at points. There's also an emotional detachment about her narration that seemed to go in and out for me of being deliberate and and not. I I wasn't always clear, in other words, what I was being invited to know and what I was being walled off from knowing and how intentional that was. On the author's part, but the the, the payoff of that um, that degree of restraint is that when you do start to feel that you intimately know these characters as they intimately know each other, by that time, by that hundred pages where I got into it, you're really invested in uh, in in what happens between the two of them and when what happens in the world around them.
1: So part of why we're talking about this book is that you know it's a it's a good book that people are talking about but i also think part of why we're talking about it is that it's a phenomenon like it's the book it's the book that people are reading it's everywhere it's color is poppy there've been a thousand profiles and think pieces you know every so often a book comes along that quote unquote everybody is reading and this is that book and so my reading of it was filtered a little bit through that lens you know the the baseline reading of what do I think of this book? Do I like it? Am I enjoying it? Do the pages seem to turn themselves or do I have to turn them with my own will? Um, and you know, on a level of, is this fun to read? And do I want to keep reading it? Yes, it absolutely works. Uh, what I had trouble figuring out at first is why exactly it had so captured the kind of zeitgeist imagination because to me, it seems like a fairly traditional, love story about young people uh, um, and a a well-told one and one that's told in very current fashion. You know, Sally Rooney's first book, Conversations with Friends, attracted notice because it more explicitly deployed, I think, different modern forms of communication. There are pieces of the book that uh, take the form of text exchanges and other digital exchanges and you know, I, I don't think I've even seen anybody use the word gimmick in regard to it because she apparently pulls it up very successfully. I haven't read that book yet, but um, this book is much more conventional. It does have this sort of um, glacial, omniscient, slightly reserved uh, third-person narrator that Dana described. But, I mean, you know, we've we've met a version of that style of narration in the past. Um, Sally Rooney has also attracted attention for describing herself as a Marxist or someone whose uh, work is fundamentally in conversation with and critique of, you know, modern capitalism, late capitalism, as they like to call it on the Internet. And um, I th- I think that that fascination and engagement is present in the fundamental relationship that we're reading about. But... Um, You know, it's not wildly revolutionary or new to suggest that social structures, manners, and mores, and the economic underpinnings of those social social structures, manners, and mores, uh, may determine how two young people who have an inkling for each other, uh, prosecute that relationship. I mean, how different is this book from Pride and Prejudice? Different, but not crazy different in some ways. Um, so I, I, I,
0: uh, is that a compliment or an insult? I'm lost.
1: It's a compliment. It's a compliment. But it. But okay. I was trying to figure why. Why is this book? Yeah. Is this book exciting people because it's so radically new and different, or is it exciting people because, in fact, it is deeply. It is a deeply well wrought. And oh. actually quite traditional version of a, of a classic form that just simply happens to take place in a very modern version of the world. And I think I come down more in the latter camp. And and the book, I, I similarly, I think, spent the first half of it thinking like, well, this is fun, but I don't know if this is like amazing. And I think by the end, I felt like, holy moly, mm-hmm. th- this is so... Um, so well done that I'm very excited to read everything this person yeah. does for the rest of their career
0: right well l- l- let me just say I think the conversations with friends is a, is a better novel I mean I, I think normal people is extraordinary but I think the conversations is pr- probably the better of the two though I mean listen everyone's gonna have their own opinion on that but absolutely read it um, and I think it'll sharpen your sense of of why She's caught this moment. I mean, Julia, in answer to what you said, I said, she's both. And that's why what she's done is so astonishing and so unique. So, I mean, I think of her as a supreme talent and a timely one. And she's a young person who seems to understand exactly how young people, how her generation have been screwed. And the social contract has been broken by globalization, financialization. She's obviously intensely aware of the politics behind, um, the futurelessness that young people are feeling. And so she's caught that mood perfectly, um, but she's caught by other things as well. And she's totally in control of them in my estimation. Um, she understands that her generation has been caught in some respects by literary theory. They've, they've grown up understanding it and understanding social and cultural theory to a highly sophisticated degree. They play an explicit role in both, um, in both novels and who has cultural capital and how they expend it. is a part of her consciousness and awareness. And she's trying both to tell a story in the form of a novel while also asking what is left for the novel once a generation has been saturated both by a kind of coolly detached irony when it comes to all of the traditional categories of affect and social performance that have animated the novel for hundreds of years and how do you write a novel when you've been taught in your formal curriculum that a novel and the great novels of the past um, are uh, artifacts of cultural capital, that, that in other words, they are attached in some supposedly corrupt way to um, uh, uh, patterns of, of power and exploitation. And I, she is trying to work her way through these problems and her, her solution, I think, is in her tone. And so what she does is she doesn't try to break through the irony or the detachment or the overconsciousness about cultural capital and who has it and who doesn't have it by reviving the novel on its old terms what she's trying to do is unrelentingly show you how people in spite of all of this are still finding themselves in each other through the medium of sexual desire principally and to, to me that's just astonishing that she's able to pull that off so it's 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 kind of in the context of this hyper awareness that she's writing a fairly traditional or trying to find her way back to a fairly traditional love story in which two people represent each other's salvation. And the question of whether or not they're going to allow that salvation to happen totally engages you to the point where I like there are moments in the first 100, 150 pages of the book where I absolutely just stopped breathing Um. anyway.
2: Yeah, I'm interested in the way that she accomplishes that effect, Stephen, the the effect of stopping the reader's breath with with language. I mean, she's an, she's when it comes to language, she's an interesting writer because she seems to be almost withholding any kind of performance of her own virtuosity as a writer, with the exception of a couple of key moments she almost never uses an extended metaphor but when those metaphors occur they're they're sort of extraordinary and almost to the point where they seem a little bit to be to be showing off because they're so different from the rest of the the plain writing but here is an example of a of a particularly powerful and rare metaphor which comes at the end of a scene without giving too much away in which marianne the young girl who's the you know romantic partner in the couple uh, is coming out of a humiliating experience into a snowy landscape Outside, her breath rises in a fine mist and the snow keeps falling like a ceaseless repetition of the same infinitesimally small mistake. I think the real strength of this novel in terms of form is is the structure of the storytelling. In other words, the way that she uh, kind of slices this relationship into these temporal bits so that each time you get to a new phase of the story, you hear it's six weeks since the last time we heard from these two, right? Or it's 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 3 years since the last time we heard from them. There can be big jumps or small jumps. They can go back or forward in time, but she has a way of thinly slicing her um her temporal presentation of the story and then interspersing those slices in such a way that You get a little bit more information about the last slice each time, if that makes sense. She does that with incredible skill. Sentence to sentence, she's not that kind of writer, you know, that you're underlining a sentence because of its beauty or or profundity. There are really a lot of um, very flat kind of banal statements of fact that add up to this much more profound vision of these people and and their world.
0: One great example of that, I think, is, for example the young man's relationship with his mother, right? I mean, Rooney's ability to take just a tiny little couplet of dialogue or the slightest, barest description so that you suddenly understand exactly what these two people mean to one another and what this kind of power dynamics and social dynamics between them is and where their love lies and where their resentment uh, butts up against it. Um, She does so much with so little,
1: I mean, one thing that I find also so interesting about her and so exciting about the idea of following her work over time is that I don't, she's engaged with really interesting and important political questions about how economic systems determine life outcomes. But in some ways, I think her view of human relationships is independent minded in some ways maybe conservative, certainly free-spirited. I mean, she seems to be engaging in a very open inquiry about how one should conduct oneself as a human even if one understands the social and systemic constraints. You know, like, what does it mean to be a person if you fundamentally believe that systems determine our lives? And her answer is not, you know, she she may present herself as a Marxist, but her answer is um, full of kind Of open minded intellectual inquiry, I think. And I, I don't, yes. I, I think you, I think part of what's really exciting about the book is you see her working through what the answer is, what the answers might be. Um, and that's what makes the work feel so electric.
0: I, I think that is so beautifully put, Julia. I, but I just couldn't agree more. She's trying to understand what role individuality, agency, and desire have once you have this much broader understanding of systems and their determinative power over us. And she's trying to find an idiom in which those things can express themselves, but not anachronistically and not naively relative to these understandings that we've gained. And there, in both novels, there are just these pointed moments where a character knows something about literary theory and she's telling you what that means to that person and how they are using it to constrain their own understanding of the world at the same time she agrees with much of the substance of it and there's a very pointed episode in normal people where the young man uh, Connell meets a young writer a young gish writer he's older than than Connell is and um and there's a discussion about like wh- what role books play in Interpersonal power relations and like whether you've read something or haven't read something whether you you know know a fact a literary fact that someone else doesn't know I mean she's she's skeptical or not skeptical but she's she's interested in the ways in which literature and power interact with one another and understands at some level that her own books will inevitably play this kind of a role in the circulation of social power.
1: Right. And many of the reviews and profiles have noted, you know, that there was, I think, a Vanity Fair spread about um, hot summer books and what to carry them in that featured the beautiful cover of Sally Rooney's book, you know, po- poised next to a very expensive Montserrat Gavriel bag that costs more than $1,000, I think, or at least more than $500. Uh, you know, like it, 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 as predicted in the pages, yes, she's, she her work is a commodity in the same way.
2: And she is a commodity in that same way. I mean, it's, it's impossible not to take into account that she is this very young writer. I think she's 28 now. So, you know, she was even younger when she hit big with conversations with friends. And, you know, she's a beautiful young woman. I mean, she's an extremely, I'm not at all saying that that accounts for the success of the novel in itself, but she is a very marketable commodity in herself as an author.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> turns out we ten, 10 minutes or whatever 15 is not enough uh, to do these these works justice and Dana and I have a fight brewing about um, which part of the book we liked uh, better and why so our plus segment this week is going to be a continuance of our discussion of Sally Rooney and her novel Normal People alright moving on now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. na 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 no, 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 Dana. That's the master recording.
2: <laughs> I can hear so many details that I've never noticed <laughs> before. <laughs> I wish it had been destroyed in a fire. Oh. Uh, okay, so my endorsement is coming out of my vacation last week. Um, for one thing, it's become a tradition that I endorse the movie I watched on the plane, <laughs> because for some reason the plane has become the place that I catch up with movies that I missed when they were first around and that end up, I mean, maybe just because almost everything is good if it passes the time on the plane, but they almost always end up surprising me for the better. And uh, in this case, it was a movie I was already excited to see and was quite impressed that it was on a plane. Uh, It's very unusual plane viewing. But all right, Peter Jackson right, who we all think of as the director of the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbits movies, is to me a director who I had considered nearly lost to us, (laughs) a great talent who I thought had just disappeared so far up his own Hobbit hole that we would never have him back again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, and I say that as somebody who's a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the actual first three movies before he just started getting off on this crazy, you know, high definition Hobbit craziness that he's now on. Um, but Peter Jackson made a documentary last year, his first documentary. Do either of you two know about this? They Shall Not Grow Old. What They Shall Not Grow Old is is a, a compilation of a lot of never seen before clips and and some that have been seen from the Imperial War Museum's archives. So you know these things have been sitting around black and white in in a British museum for however long it's been a hundred years since the First World War and uh, and he's colorized them. Not all of them, but some of these clips and I'll tell you how it works in a minute uh, have been colorized according to you know modern processes of colorization that have gone way beyond the Ted Turner days when we used to remember Steve in the 80s, wring our hands over the fact that, that Turner Classic Movies was colorizing Casablanca and things like that. And that was, in fact, an aberration. But there's sort of a movement now among archivists to restore colorization to, to some sense of dignity. There's a new book I really want to read called The Color of Time that takes famous historical photographs and tries to reconstitute what they might have looked like in color. And there's something about seeing footage that we're used to seeing in black and white and that we've kind of grown inured to in black and white in color that gives it a different sense of temporality, that gives you more of a sense that this really happened, these people were alive in this moment, past in history, and it's not just something that we're looking at in a on a History Channel documentary. And uh, and this movie uses that technique to great effect. It also, in some ways, mixes sound in. Um, for example, you know, showing a battlefield, you're not going to hear direct uh, dialogue put into the the moving mouths of these these silent figures on screen but you will maybe hear some you know bombardments in the background and the sound of maybe horse hooves going by and sort of a general din of voices enough of a sound laid in that again you get some sense of of being there it almost reminds me of a clip I endorsed long ago remember on the show that was a, a walk through New York and I think 1908 or something like that that had been very Gently added, you know, with some sound of just sort of lapping waves and clopping horse hooves, and it so changed the sensation that you had watching it of of moving back into the past. So They Shall Not Grow Old does that with color and sound. It also does a lot of interesting things with not identifying who's speaking. You hear all you hear in the in the voiceover track are the voices of soldiers giving testimony about what it was like to fight in World War One, and some of that I believe is a recorded testimony that was also archived at the time, and some of it is read by voice actors later, but it, you can't really tell which is which, and it's all the actual words of men, British men, who went off to fight in the war. So um, this this documentary just feels so different from your normal history channel hodgepodge where a talking head tells you what to think and then you see a black and white clip illustrating what they just said. It just, it feels so much more immersive is the only word I can think to say. And uh, it's hard to watch in some parts, like trench foot and gangrene are not things you necessarily want to see in color. There's a lot of gore toward the end. Um, It's, you know, but it's a very accurate depiction of of the horrors of that war and the kind of uniqueness of those horrors to the time. So uh, I believe it's streaming on Amazon right now. You can look for it on other streaming sites as well. It's called they shall not grow old a Peter Jackson documentary about world war one. And then my last uh, vacation related endorsement is a little bit more of a question I'm throwing out to listeners. So what I did for my family vacation this year, my whole family met in Vancouver and we rented a house on the, on the bay in Vancouver and it was beautiful and we didn't get that much time in the city. But one of the days that we did spend in the city, we went to this amazing bookstore called McLeods. So I'm also endorsing the bookstore McLeods in Vancouver, which is one of those crazy piled to the ceiling just warehouses of what appear to be utterly unorganized, heaps of books. But if you ask the clerks, they will find you amazing things in the piles. And I even have this is the first time I've ever done this, but I'm throwing out to any listeners who live in Vancouver, there's a book that I desperately wish I had bought, and I didn't because I was being cheap and If anybody lives in Vancouver who listens to the show and regularly goes to McLeod's anyway, I'm going to ask them to pick up this book for me and maybe we'll find a way to get it to me somehow. So McLeod's bookstore in Vancouver and they should not grow old by Peter Jackson vacation
0: wrecks. Very cool. Um, Julia, what do you have?
1: So, you know, who knows how to write books? J.K. Rowling. Uh, Mm. As you all know, she wrote those Harry Potter books. And if you are like me, you already read them all. Um, but a few years ago, she wrote under a pseudonym a mystery novel, a kind of a grown-up mystery novel. Uh, she tried to be anonymous. She used the name Robert Galbraith. Uh, there was a big flap when she was... Outed as the actual author. She was disappointed. People discussed it. Blah, de, blah, de, blah. I was looking for some kind of engaging mystery that wouldn't take too much brain power to read on vacation. And I was like, I wonder if those Robert Galbraith books are any good and if she wrote any more. Turns out the Cormoran Strike series is now four books deep. And uh, that lady really knows how to write a book. And it's really interesting if you are a Harry Potter file or student in any way to see how the kind of storytelling finesse of J.K. Rowling uh, exerts itself when you can have grisly murders and booze and, you know, all, all of the other things that happen in adult mystery novels. They're no surprise, very page turningly readable, will occupy you on a beach towel and make you stay up past your bedtime. A couple of her hallmarks that are apparent from the Harry Potter books do show up here. She's got great Main characters—they're very well characterized. Their relationships are subtle and interesting, and the attention to the kind of tensions between the two lead detectives that we follow um, is is a big part of what makes the books emotionally interesting and dynamic. You know, both of the characters have big life issues they're wrestling with and arcs they're trying to get through. They're not just kind of cold, unthinking. Uh, Let me solve this murder for you, ma'am. Types. Um, also, a subset, you know, the, the kind of rhythm and routine and habits and ticks of describing, you know, the characteristics of the house and the sorting hat and all of the recursive qualities of the here here we go. All of that seems to be funneled in these books into an extraordinary attention to the details of pubs in London. So they're constantly stopping in pubs or taking a break to worry through a detail of a case, or maybe they'll go on a kind of investigative trip to chase a lead to somewhere in Scotland and they'll check out a pub there. But I don't know yet whether these are all specific real pubs in London, but they're just really, every time they stop in a pub, There is a paragraph wherein J.K. Rowling, as Robert Galbraith, like lovingly describes the exact character of the pub, the quality of the light, what the carpet is like, what the windows are like, what the general vibe is. And it just I've never felt more like through the looking glass towards Britishness. Like it just feels like this kind of um, retro love letter to British pub culture that's embedded through these works in a way that is uh, a fun little Easter egg as you read them. So if you are looking for a beach read and you like Harry Potter and you never bothered to pick up the Robert Galbraith books, I'm here to tell you the shocking news. Mm-hmm. J.K. Rowling knows how to write a book.
0: Uh, excellent. I really want to read those, actually. All right. So uh, I'm going to endorse two things this week. First, the book, um, you know, the New Yorker Review of Books has this uh, amazing imprint. They just find great stuff and republish it uh and uh they've uh i don't know when they came out with this i think it was a little while ago but they came out with picture by lillian ross dana have you ever read picture
2: nope is it a novel
0: no it's so Lillian Ross was of course one of the truly great uh, writers that The New Yorker ever had just terrific reporter, incredible pro stylist I mean as as sort of pa- paradigmatically elegant as the New Yorker ever was uh, that's who Lillian Ross was wrote for them for like fifty years um, and one of the great pioneers of uh, modern long form journalism she followed uh, wrote a very long piece um about the director John Houston as he attempted to bring the Stephen Crane novel Red Badge of Courage to the screen. And basically she had full access the uh to uh Houston who she brings alive beautifully and it details how he makes a two hour what he thinks of as masterpiece. He thinks it's maybe the best movie that he's uh, ever made. Studio bosses step in, uh they do audience previews, uh they take control the studio takes control of the picture, recuts it, uh butchers it effectively and produces a flop and a total disaster. And picture is the nonfiction reporting of this whole uh, process from beginning to end. And is certainly one of the best movie uh, books ever written about the um, um, American movie industry. Uh, It's a remarkable book and people ought to check it out. And then secondly, I (laughs) came across a, to something I'd never encountered before in Hudson. I'd heard it was good and I finally did it, but there a number of years ago, an antique store in, um, uh, in Hudson, opened a uh, bar and back called Back Bar, and it's a not really nice outdoor space, and it's a beautifully built old bar refurbished old bar and uh it's a great place to sit and have a drink but they started doing a dim sum brunch on weekends roughly noon to roughly 4 p.m on saturdays and sundays i'd heard it was good it's beyond good it's like really 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 good it's some of the best food i've had in the um, hudson valley uh and it's really cool you just you order these small plates you get a beer and you sit there for an hour on a, on a sunday and not only did i go on saturday i ran into mike pesca there So if you go, yeah, there's some chance you're gonna run into a slatester, you know, a celebrity. But um, it's really fun. It's really social out there on a nice summer day, good decent weather. I'm telling you, I'm pounding the table on this one. That food was really, really good. Go get a dim sum brunch at Back Bar. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Dana, thanks a lot.
1: Thanks, Stephen.
0: Nice to have the team back together.
1: Yes, indeed. Thank you all for holding down the fort during my injuries and uh, and travels. I'm grateful.
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or interact with us on Twitter. Our Twitter feed is at slate Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our produ- production assistant is Alex Barrish for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon, I hope.
2: Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. Oh, I mean, I, I found him <laughs> complex, believably depressed and anxious when he got to college. You know, somebody who had always kept his talents under his hat and who sort of slowly blossomed over the course of the novel. But he's... Uh, I loved I, Connell. I, I want Julia to break the tie on that. Is he's Connell so real healing okay, okay. to you?